and she suffers from breast cancer, I'm told, and she was sitting on a wooden chair, and she has the kind of look you see in a National Geographic photograph with smiling eyes peering out from a deeply wrinkled face which has been over a century living on that mountain. Leading up to this famous Jesus parable, parable of the sower and the seed is the way most of us have known it. Uh, so just prior to when Jesus shares this parable in Matthew's gospel, uh, the Pharisees are, are, are grumbling that Jesus' disciples were picking grain on the Sabbath. These are religious leaders and, you know, we, we get it, kind of what the issue is here, that you're supposed to rest on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to do any work, and they were particularly upset that Jesus' followers were ignoring those religious rules and they were picking grain on the Sabbath. And every time we hear this, we think, that's, that's kind of dumb. I mean, uh, we get it. We're supposed to observe the Sabbath too. For us, it's Sunday, not Saturday. But let's, let's face it. I mean, there are Christian volleyball leagues that run tournaments on Sundays. <laughs> I mean, I know this because our daughters played in them. Um, so right after that, Jesus healed the man with a withered hand, is the way Matthew tells it. This was uh, during worship one day, and the religious leaders, even though this happened right in the middle of the worship service, they didn't like that one little bit. This is right after the, the other issue with picking grain on the Sabbath. So they grumbled again, and again we say, that's dumb. I mean, we use Sunday afternoon uh, to, you know, get the lawn mowed, get the house clean, uh, uh, pull the weeds out of the garden, you know, get a little work done. And to be honest, it sounds a bit ridiculous to us to even include healing a guy with a withered hand. I mean, a kind of miracle. It, it seems ridiculous to count that as work, doesn't it? Well, so Jesus, it appears in Matthew's Gospel, after these two successive incidents with religious leaders complaining that neither his followers nor himself follow the religious rules as they ought to, um, right after this, uh, Jesus seems to have had enough. And he says, you know, I'm pretty sure you hypocrites, if one of your sheep fell down in a pit, you'd uh, jump down in there and rescue that animal. And isn't, isn't this man with this physical challenge more important than your livestock? Well, it's right after this, okay? Bang, bang, bang. You know, picking grain on the Sabbath, healing with the withered hand. Jesus says, you, you bunch of hypocrites, you jump down in a hole and rescue a sheep. And now we get the parable in Matthew's Gospel, a familiar parable of the sower and the seed. So just this quick review gives us a sense of how important it is to keep Scripture in its context, and that includes, you know, the stories and parables of Jesus. One day, one fine day, Jesus 
was uh, surrounded by a large crowd on the, on the shores of the lake. And so he got into the boat and pushed off shore a bit to get some separation from himself and the crowd, presumably so everybody could see him, not only the people who were right up against him, and he could, uh, and he could speak to them and they could, they could hear him. And once upon a time, he said, a sower threw seeds all over the place, which is a little lost on us. This would be a little bit a little bit shocking right at the outset for those hearing Jesus. This farmer, this sower is flinging seed willy-nilly all over the place. And some seeds fall, of course. I mean, if this is the way you're going to do it, some seeds fall on, uh, on uh, a weed patch and uh, uh, birds found them and, and, and uh, some fell on hard ground and they couldn't... Uh, get roots down into the soil, and the, the sun came, and they, they withered. And uh, only one batch of all of the seed found good soil, and it grew, and it thrived. So Jesus' parable of the sower, told in the context that we've established, it invites an obvious question. Now, it's a question for worthy of our consideration on a, on a rainy July Sunday. Why, why does some seed make it, some doesn't? At a literal level, it's easy enough. You know, hungry birds, rocky soil, blazing sun, lack of rain. But this is a parable about faith. So it invites a spiritual question. What, why is it that faith in God seems to take hold in some people's lives and and not in others. Why do some people find it possible, even necessary, affirming, life-giving, to believe and others just don't? What is it that makes good soil for faith to grow? Oh, our youngest daughter, Clara, has been living in uh, Madrid this past year, uh, schooling and uh, teaching English and so forth, and she's home now for the summer. She's going to return, and when I was able to go visit her, uh, one of the things that struck me about Madrid is that uh, all, of, all of the paved areas, which was all of the common areas where uh, we, we walked, and we walked uh, you know, a lot, and I always noticed that the, the walkways and even the roads were, you know, either granite or ancient cobblestone um, everywhere I looked. It just it struck me because here in the U.S., if we walk outside, what do we see? Asphalt and concrete, right? Asphalt and concrete almost everywhere we look. Uh, but uh, during... Uh, Asked the pastors last Sunday, uh, Tanzania came up uh, in reference to that passage in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that gets translated into a tribal, uh, uh, local tribal dialect in Tanzania as Kushiani, which I was talking about. And, and in Tanzania, if you've been over there either with me or on your own, you know that there's very little pavement or asphalt of any kind almost anywhere. It's mostly dirt everywhere you look. Uh, and it's a common uh, scene in Tanzania to see people uh, with makeshift brooms 
sweeping the dirt, sweeping the dirt uh, floor of their, of their homes, which also are often made of dirt, soil, and sticks, sweeping the dirt out in front of their small homes or shops. Common, common scene to see. Um, and it's so common to hear about drought in, in Africa, specifically in Tanzania, which brings you know, famine and all kinds of hardship because that soil then is dry and cracked and unyielding. So the question becomes, if you, again, if you've been able to experience a, a, a vision trip to Tanzania, you know how deep and vibrant is the faith of our, uh, certainly of our Lutheran brothers and sisters there. So if this is a parable about good soil for faith to grow, then why is it that the parched earth that so often brings famine and hardship in Tanzania also seems to be a place where deep and abiding faith can take hold and grow and thrive? Why is that? Does it translate to us in our lives? Many of us have probably experienced that it is in the struggle, the struggles of life and the depth, the deep parts, rather than in the shallow, um, thin and shallow layers that the seeds of God's presence often take root. We've shared this together in so many different contexts. Sometimes the seeds of faith take root in the midst of illness or in mourning the loss of a loved one. Sometimes faith can take root in the deep valleys that feel like failure. Sometimes faith can take root uh, in the midst of wonder and awe, in the midst of some um, joyful day. So often, the moral of the story of this parable of the sower and the seed is that we should be good soil, right? Whatever that is. I mean, I'm not sure how helpful it is for you if I'm barking at you from up here, be good soil. <laughs> well, how are you going to take that with you? What are you going to do exactly? But what if good soil for faith to grow is broken soil? What if it's parched soil? In the early years of leading trips to Tanzania, I always tried to keep a blog, a daily blog of the activities, because for most of the loved ones back home, it was the only connection they had to their uh, family member or friend who was on the trip uh, to hear how it's going and how they're doing and what's, what's happening. Um, this, this was before there was really good any internet access over there and before people's phones availed themselves of international plans where they could go ahead and be in contact with folks at home. So at the end of every long, rich day of travel, exhausted though I was, I would find a quiet place and I would sit down and I would write out what we experienced that day. And then I would have to have uh, one of my friends there in Tanzania find some internet cafe and in this eminently frustrating experience, I would try to upload these blogs and, and sit, you remember the old like spinny things you'd see or the bars that were filling while you waited and sometimes it would get 
you know, I'd be 30 minutes in and it would get 90% over and then it would just go away and I'd have to start all over again. But I, 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 there, was, there was a value to doing this and writing these blogs. And so I, as I thought about how Tanzania, how broken and parched and suffering often yields itself to being good soil for faith to grow, I wanted to share just two blog posts from back in the day that I sent home from deep in the Tanzanian wilderness. And the first was my final trip that I led uh, from the church I served out in Pennsylvania, uh, in Chester County. Uh, so this was from May 6th, the end of a long day on May 6th, the year 2011. This is what I wrote. It's difficult to know what to write in these posts since I can only cover a fraction of what we experience while we're here. So let me try to give at least a glimpse into another rich day spent on this mountain. That would be Mount Kilimanjaro. We stayed last night in a new little hotel up in the Machame area and woke to one of the most spectacular views of Kilimanjaro that I have seen. We met up with Bob Caseworm and a Tanzanian man named Murrow. Uh, Murrow, who serves as a palliative care nurse from Machame Lutheran Hospital, Murrow is a scrubby-looking little guy who would be easy to look past if you didn't know him. He visits terminally ill patients scattered all over the lower slop, uh, slopes of the mountain in that region. There are 1,400 such patients dispersed throughout the surrounding villages, hidden in the midst of the forest and shambas and connected only by a bewildering network of roads with no names or signs. Even so, Murrow knows exactly how to find each one of his patients. You know flashier people than Murrow, but you do not know anyone more doing more necessary or meaningful work than he does day in and day out. When it was time to head out, Bob's pickup wouldn't start, so a couple of the gals working at the little hotel helped to give us a push down the drive so Bob could pop the clutch, and off we went. Four men sitting in a truck being pushed by two women is not as uncommon a sight here as it may be in other places. We were heading up the dirt paths into the villages to accompany Merle on some hospice visits. The rest of the day, Bob would need to remember to park in such a way that the truck was facing downhill before he shut it off so that we could get it rolling and start it again. Each home we visited was a life-changing experience. None more or less moving than another, but for now I will write only about the first stop. Eventually, we got out of the truck and we hiked our way up a dirt trail to the first home we would visit. We came to a small shack and were welcomed inside the dark little front room of the two-room earthen house. The room was very warm and filled with the smoke of a charcoal fire smoldering in the rear of the house. The walls and the ceiling were covered in black soot from decades of that fire burning. Several neighbors began to appear 
and squeezed into the little shack until we were about nine people sitting around the perimeter of an eight-by-ten-foot room with a bed against a dirt wall. The woman being cared for is 103 years old, and she suffers from breast cancer, I'm told, and she was sitting on a wooden chair, and she has the kind of look you see in a National Geographic photograph with smiling eyes peering out from a deeply wrinkled face which has been over a century living on that mountain. She was visibly happy when she was told that I was Mchungaji, which is pastor. With the room full of strangers and neighbors who wandered in, there was no concern for privacy as Murrow checked her condition with great compassion and you could see how much she appreciated him. After I prayed for her and all of those present in that dark and smoky and warm little shack, the old woman reached out for me and she took my face in her hands and she put them on top of my head as she prayed blessings upon me in her native tribal language. There are moments in our lives, I suppose, when God draws closer to us than usual. And at that moment, right there, in that shack, it was as much as I could take. Uh, fast forward some years, and uh, I am here at Prince of Peace, and in our June 2014 trip, uh, June 23rd to be exact, uh, I wrote the following. Next week, uh, next we made our way to Ashira Lutheran Parish. This congregation has a fascinating history connected to the establishment of the Lutheran Church and the work of the German missionaries. Back in the day, this hilltop location was the site where local tribes disposed of dead bodies in a certain area under a certain tree. The word Ashira is derived from the English pronunciation of the Chaga word for the place that stinks. So imagine telling people you are a member of Stinky Lutheran, Ashira Lutheran Parish. The chief figured out that by giving these pesky missionaries this cursed ground that they would soon disappear. More than 100 years later, and the Lutheran Church thrives everywhere you look in this entire region, emanating from the ground of a sheer Lutheran parish. The gospel can take root and grow wherever it is planted. We hiked back into the forest near Ashira to see the place where the missionaries baptized the very first Christians in this region. In fact, they continued to baptize people in this historic location to this day. Our visit to Ashira was also special because this is the place where one of our members, uh, Candy Kwame's aunt, served as the headmistress of the Ashira Lutheran Secondary School for some years back in the late 50s to early 60s. 
and Candy was on this trip. We, we all walked through the beautiful campus of the school and Candy was able to meet the current headmaster and even sign the visitor's book in that special place to her family. So I ask again, what if good soil for faith to grow is broken soil? Sad, confused, parched, grieving, poor. That same day Jesus went out of the house and he sat beside the sea. Such crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and he sat there and while the whole crowd stood on the beach, Jesus told them many things in parables saying, a sower went out to sow. He threw the seed everywhere. So what are you saying, Chad? Are you saying that we should try to, you know, suffer or grieve or mourn or be poor uh, so that this cracked and parched soil might be a good place for the seeds of faith to grow? Well, no, of course not. You have now been fed and forgiven and you are a chosen, beloved, child of God. And if you are not any of those things, poor, grieving, ill, afraid, then you are sent into a world that suffers from all of it to draw near those who are in need. You have what they need. You carry in you the very body and blood, the broken one who's forgiven you and sends you out. This is the gospel. It is the treasure of the church. It's ours to share. I've tested it. It goes all the way deep into the villages in poor places where they live in mud huts and suffer from breast cancer. And in that dark, smoky shack I found God present well before I got there so you go now in peace to love and serve the Lord thanks be to God